Two Sundays ago, we looked at uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and some of you might be wondering why we've been singing these resurrection songs. Well, we've been looking at that in the narrative of John, and, uh, and quite frankly, every Sunday is a celebration of His resurrection, so I don't know why we wait till once a year to do that. We should be singing about it and talking about His resurrection all the time, the whole gospel, really. But in any case, that's what we looked at a couple of Sundays ago. We also learned why it's important. We covered several facets of it. And on the Sunday that Jesus actually rose from the grave, we learned that the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, that was kind of the Jewish Supreme Court, uh, they concocted a story um, stating that Jesus' body had been stolen by His disciples in an attempt to, uh, you know, fake His resurrection. They concocted the story uh, to cover up the resurrection. We looked at that in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 14. This story later became known as the conspiracy theory. When John recorded his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, this conspiracy theory was still in circulation among the Jews. Matthew 28, 15 says so. And quite frankly, it's still in circulation today among the Jews. The pious Orthodox Jews are still saying that his disciples... Uh, stole his body. But over time, additional theories against the resurrection were developed by various enemies of the truth and history, liberal, pseudo-scholars, etc. I'll just go over a few of them here since we're still focusing on the resurrection. I did talk about the swoon theory a little bit, not much, but it's the view that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but he fell into a kind of semi coma due to blood loss and shock. And later the spices and the coolness of the tomb revived him. And Jesus then walks out of the tomb and meets with the disciples and they mistakenly assume that he had risen from the dead. That was the swoon theory, more like the buffoon theory. Uh, You have the hallucination theory. This isn't one that uh, I mentioned two weeks ago. This is the view that Jesus's followers were so overwhelmed by grief and sorrow, and they wanted so desperately for him to be resurrected. And that's amazing because they had no idea he would be resurrected. They were pretty clueless, even though he taught them this. Between their sorrow and their desperate attitude for him to be resurrected, they actually had hallucinations in seeing him resurrected. So uh, that sounds more like something that was developed in the 60s when acid came out onto the streets. I I don't understand what's going on here. Hallucinations are never, ever, ever experienced by groups, always individuals. But in any case, there's that theory, and that's, believe it or not, still in circulation. There's the relocation theory, the view that Jesus' body was only stored in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb uh, on Friday, you know, before sunset, But then on Saturday at some point, it it was moved to a second tomb in the graveyard of the condemned where Jesus' body was buried dishonorably. So you have the relocation theory that it was placed in one tomb and then it was moved before Sunday and, you know, no resurrection happened. His his body was just moved to another tomb. You also have the the wrong tomb theory. This one's uh, not interesting at all. Uh, This is the view that the the women who came to the the tomb early on Easter morning mistakenly went to the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong address, I guess. Finding it empty, they erroneously assumed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Uh, Interestingly, though, that two of these women that came early Easter morning, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, uh, they were actually there on Friday evening helping to prepare and bury Jesus' body in Joseph's tomb. So... I guess somehow these women experienced memory loss. You know, they they just forgot where the tomb was. Uh, So this is an absolute ridiculous false theory as well. A good question arises, though, because the resurrection has been such a uh, denied and rejected reality and doctrine. Why do people deny the resurrection of Jesus? Why do they invent these ridiculous, silly theories Well, I think MacArthur provides a pretty good answer to that question. He said this, The issue is not lack of evidence, but stubborn unbelief driven by a love of sin. People are unwilling to accept the 
inescapable consequence of the resurrection, namely that Christ is God, the God of Scripture, and that they are accountable for every violation of His law and in need of His grace. Thus, sinful men, in an irrational effort to evade their guilt and accountability to the one true God, have concocted various theories in a futile attempt to explain away the reality of resurrection. So MacArthur says the reason why people deny it and the reason why people try to cover it up or explain it away through these various theories is it's just good old-fashioned unbelief. It's just good old-fashioned love of sin. And I think he's hit the nail on the head with that statement. Now, a powerful weapon against those who deny the resurrection and perpetuate these silly theories is the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And the New Testament shows that Jesus made 10 appearances between his resurrection and ascension. That's over a 40-day period. Four of these are recorded in John. Let's just go over them really quickly. We'll go over all of them. Uh, Firstly, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Uh, That's John 20, verse 14. That's what we're looking at today. Second, Jesus appeared to several women returning from the grave. Uh, Matthew 28, verses 9 through 10. Uh, Jesus appeared to Simon Peter, Luke 24, 34, 1 Corinthians 15, 5. Jesus appeared to the two disciples going to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13. He appeared to 10 disciples in the upper room, John 20, verse 19. We'll get to that text later, uh, Luke 24, 36 to 43. Jesus appeared to 11 disciples in the upper room, uh, John 20, 26 through 29. He appeared to seven disciples while fishing. They were fishing at the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee, John 21, 1 through 14. He appeared to 500 brethren at once, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. It's believed that he may have done this on a hilltop where all these people were gathered. It might have been at his ascension, some speculate. Uh, Nine, he appeared to his half-brother, James, you know, James went on to become the, uh, become the pastor at the church at Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Uh, he appeared to 11 disciples on the Mount of Olives at his ascension. Matthew 28, 16, Luke 24, 49 through 53, Acts 1, 3 through 11. So those are the appearances according to Scripture of Jesus after his resurrection but before his ascension. And I didn't write them down, but we want to also acknowledge the appearances Jesus made after his ascension. Saul of Tarsus, right, on the road to Damascus, to Stephen as Stephen was being martyred. Uh, So we have even appearances that took place after his uh, ascension and enthronement. Uh, So there's, there's plenty of evidence, historical, biblical evidence for Jesus rising. It's all out there, but again, the rationale, the reason... It's because I deny that, because if I don't deny it, then I'm accountable to a God or the God. That's the issue. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the very first post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18 will be our focus. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18 I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Father, we humble ourselves now, and we thank you for this time that we have. We acknowledge your sovereignty, your glory, your infiniteness, your perfect holiness, your righteousness. Just, um, I, I suppose we do the best we can with those things because some of them are just so far beyond our minds. But we do acknowledge who you are. And we humble ourselves and acknowledge who we are. We are not you. (laughs) And uh, someone once said that the the Bible is baby talk to us. And uh, and that just goes to show your vastness, and you are. So we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your grace in Christ. That through grace, we can become sons and daughters, or we have become sons and daughters, through adoption, through faith. And so we thank you for who you are, and we humble ourselves and want to pay close attention to your word today. And we pray that you speak to us, 
and uh, that you meet each of us right where we're at, that you challenge each of us, that you sanctify each of us, uh, that you chisel away a little bit more of myself and make me a little bit more like Christ today. That's what we desire. We desire that transformation, that sanctification. If there be any man or woman here who has not yet come to know you in a saving way, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to work that miracle in them. And what, what a grace that would be. We could celebrate with them. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you, and uh, we submit to you, and we ask that you teach us, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. By way of context, Peter and John had just left the empty tomb and, very interestingly, returned home. I guess after uh, you go find an empty tomb of your Savior, the first thing you want to do is go home. It's just such a bizarre thing, but they did. That's what it says in the previous text. John did believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, but Peter was still uncertain. Uh, And we're, again, framing the context. Mary Magdalene thought Jesus' body had been stolen by grave robbers. And after running off to the upper room and telling the disciples, you know, giving them her hypothesis, her theory, she actually, after John and and, uh, after... John and, uh, and Peter went down to the tomb. She kind of followed after them, and she went down to the tomb as well, and uh, maybe hoping to find more clues, maybe to possibly talk with someone that might have information regarding the whereabouts of his body. That's where we left off. And now we pick it up at verses 11 and th- through 13. I'll read it. It says, But Mary stood outside or stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at his feet or at the feet. Uh, They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, and she gives them a reason. She says, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And we end right there. So Mary, we find Mary Magdalene here back at the tomb, and she's outside the tomb, and she's weeping pretty bitterly. This is, uh, the text seems to indicate that she was weeping pretty bitterly, um, probably like uh, one who has no hope. One who does not know the Lord. She's weeping in that kind of, almost a wailing. She's really, really, really super, super upset. And her weeping does illustrate a couple of things. I mean, firstly, it, it illustrates her affection and love for the Lord. Right? You, don't, you don't weep in this manner over someone you do not love unless you're just trying to fake others out. And so, firstly, it, it, it does illustrate her affection for the Lord. She was insanely uh, concerned about where his body was. She didn't want his body to be uh, dishonored in any way or touched or stolen or disturbed or any of that. And so she was very, very concerned. Secondly, it, it illustrates her unbelief. You know, it's, it's, it's totally possible for us to, to have a heart of love for the Lord, but... <laughs> to be also ignorant of the reality of truth, uh, some facets of the reality of truth at least. But She wept because she loved the Lord, but she didn't understand or believe his consistent teachings about his death, burial, and resurrection on the third day. I mean, this is something that he repeated over and over to the disciples, and she was always present, nearly always present around the disciples and touring with Jesus. And so she had heard him say these things numerous times, and yet she doesn't believe it. And that's why she's out there crying. I mean, if you understand Jesus is going to rise, and then you go to the tomb on the third day and he's risen, you rejoice. <laughs> you, don't, you don't weep because his body's been stolen, right? So there's the affection aspect here, and then there's the ignorance and the unbelief that are both represented here. And her, um, you know, her grief was so deep, so profound, that it had a, a kind of blinding effect on her. You know, that you can get, you can experience such grief over the loss of someone or over some kind of scenario that's played out that just rocks your world. And, 
it kind of blinds you to, the, to, to certain realities and to things that are going on. Uh, it kind of makes it difficult for you to see uh, things clearly. And we see this represented in the fact that she stoops down to look into the tomb and she sees two angels in there, right? And then shortly, and this has absolutely no effect on her. I mean, we see two angels everywhere else in Scripture. People bow and start worshiping. The angels say, get up, I'm not Jesus. She sees two angels in white. It's, the text is explicit. And this has little to no effect on her. And, and even Jesus himself, who comes up behind her and starts speaking with her head, I mean, even he at this point couldn't recapture her focus. And some would say, well, that's because she couldn't recognize him. But we'd like to figure out why that is, and we'll talk about that shortly. But what I'm telling you is that she had such grief that it was blinding. Angels are in front of you, woman. Ah! You know, it's like, I mean, come on, right? This can happen to any of us, that you can experience something that can cause this kind of, you know, this uncontrolled grief. And the text really does warn us against it. When we sorrow like Mary, we can become spiritually blinded and unable to see God's provision that might right be there and you know be there right in front of us. We we are unable to experience and even be comforted by the, the spiritual presence of Jesus, which is being constantly manifested in us and to us through the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the first things people say, and this happens with believers all the time, when they're going through serious tribulation or trouble, a loss, whatever, is they, I, I just don't know if God is here. They always say this. I don't know if God is here or where is God in the midst of this. Have you ever said that yourself or heard people say that? And I'm like, if you're a believer, he hasn't left you. Elvis has not left the building. Jesus is still in you if you are a believer. So, but people are always saying this, right? Such grief, it just blinds them to the reality of Christ's spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit or to the things that, that we actually believe we need in that moment. Sometimes they're right before our eyes, but we don't realize it. Uncontrolled grief, it, it can be lethal. It can be deadly because it can cause this kind of blindness. And, and notice Mary's posture. She stooped. Well, if you're going to stoop, you got to look down. She stoops, which means she looked down. And I'll tell you what, grief is the inevitable result of looking down and keeping your eyes on your circumstances, keeping your eyes on the things of this world. You want to become depressed? Just focus on the things down on this side. You want to be depressed and saddened and, and grieved? Just, just keep your focus down here on what's going on around you or on all the trouble that you're going through. That is a surefire way to have such great grief and to be blinded to, to the things of God. Our circumstances, you know, challenges, needs, losses disappointments and failings. Man, if I focus on those things all the time, or if I'm focused on others all the time and the issues they have and they're going through, talk about a recipe for depression. But if we look up, if we keep our eyes and minds fixed on heaven, on Jesus, grief will become a stranger to us. It'll become foreign, maybe periodic, because we all experience it. But the focus is what's so key. There's a couple of passages I think every believer should have memorized or maybe posted on the fridge or somewhere else. Both deal with proper focus. The first one addresses our eyes and the second our minds. I absolutely love uh, Psalm 121. This is a psalm of ascent, by the way. These particular psalms, there's a handful of them right here uh, in this area of, of the book of Psalms where the Israelites... The Jews would sing these songs of ascent on their way into Jerusalem for the various feasts that they would attend. And as they would look toward the city, which was higher than every other place, it's up on a, it's, it's raised up, and even the, the Temple Mount is up high, kind of in a high point in the city in old Jerusalem. But they would look up and they would see that Temple Mount, and they would see these songs as they were, you know, as they were coming into the city. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Man, 
you mean? The Jews knew to look to the hills. They're looking at one hill in particular, and that was the hill that the temple was built on. But the idea is keeping your eyes up, keeping your eyes focused on the Lord. That right there is a grief killer. Secondly, I love, and this is just as straightforward as you can be, Colossians 3, 2. Paul just simply writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth, right? I don't know about you, but I have to have have these tattooed on my eyelids, right? Because we're going through so much all the time, and there's so many things happening around us all the time. We're always experiencing loss and tragedy and difficulty. It's hard in this life. Jesus said it would be. Some of us experience persecution because we're living out the faith publicly like we should be. But you've got to have these kinds of verses around you, and you've got to have these encouragements. You need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded not just to stoop down and look down, but to look up and to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. Reminded of Jesus' teaching to his disciples where he says, you know, focus on God's righteousness and on the kingdom of God and all these things, everything that you need will be added to you. So where are we to focus? Below? Oh, that's depression. That's discouraging. I think we have to look at it because we have to know how to minister. We have to be cognizant. We have to be aware of what's going on around us. But it certainly shouldn't captivate all of our focus and mental power. And that's what happens, right? That's the trick of the devil, to get us focused only on our circumstances. When we need to raise our eyes to the hills, we need to set our minds on things above. And I want you to notice also the appearance of the angels, okay? They were in white, (laughs) which means that they did not hide their heavenly glory, uh, nor did they take on the form of human beings or something like that. Some speculate that's why Mary couldn't recognize them as angels because they looked just like two regular guys, maybe a couple more gardeners or something. Well, John doesn't tell us that. John tells us they were in white. So he tells us how they were dressed. White denotes their heavenly glory. It denotes purity and freedom from defilement, which is the character of all the inhabitants of heaven. They're all clothed in white. And when Mary stooped and looked into the tomb, she saw angels in white, but it had zero effect on her. Why? Uncontrolled grief. Grief out of control. Not right focus. And unbelief. Not believing in Jesus' clear teachings about Him rising on the third day. And J.C. Ryle has a great comment here. He says, What thoughtful Christian can fail to see that we have here a faithful picture of many a believer's experience? How often we mourn over the absence of things which in reality are within our grasp and even at our right hand. Oh, what a brilliant comment. He's just talking about this blinding effect of grief, that it renders us to the point where we can't even, we can't sense the Lord's presence, we can't see His provision, His bounty, what he's provided. How many tears have we shed over something that we know we need and we we believe that we don't have it and we've shed all these tears over that. We've uttered up all these prayers only to find a little later that what we were looking for was right there all along. That is what grief can do to you. It can blind you. It can. Now I want you to notice the posture of the angels. They were, it says, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. Now, what does one at the head and one at the feet remind us of? Well, if you've studied the Old Testament to any length and you know, maybe spent some time in, in Exodus, you'd know that it would remind you of the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which is explicitly described in Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. It was a wooden box covered in gold inside and out. It had four exterior rings through which poles could be attached for carrying. The lid was also made of gold, and and it formed a seat between two angels called the mercy seat. The way the angels were positioned, according to Exodus uh, 25, is they were positioned where their wings were pointing toward one another over the mercy seat. So you had the backs of the angels on the edge, and they were facing like this with their wings pointed in, and then you had the mercy seat. And the stone tablets on which the 
commandments of God were inscribed, were kept in this ark. Once a year, uh, the high priest would enter where the ark was kept, the most holy place or the holiest of holies, to sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed bull onto the mercy seat between the two angels for the sins of the people. And they would burn, at the same time there would be powerful incense burning in this room and that, that smoke would arise and, and, and hover above the mercy seat, above the blood, uh, in between the angels there. It would all kind of float up in there. And what would happen? God would manifest His presence in Shekinah glory and He would speak to the high priest. He would give him instructions, etc. And what I want you to understand here is that where is the literal place of God meeting with His people back during those days? It was above that Ark of the Covenant. It was in that room. He would meet with the high priest and give him instruction. So we think of the meeting place of God as the tabernacle, yes, but more specifically, it was right there at the Ark. So the Ark of the Covenant was the meeting place between the God of heaven and His people on earth, literally. Now here's the symbolism and here's the parallel. When those two angels appeared seated, this is the kind of stuff that just rocks my world. When those two angels appeared seated at the head and foot of the seat where Jesus' body had lain, it symbolized the fact that God had established a new and permanent meeting place between Himself and man. And that meeting place is the Lord Jesus. It's not... It's not in temples built by human hands. It's not above a wooden and gold ark. It, the meeting place is a person. It's not, even a, it's not even technically a place or an it. It is a person. It is the Lord Jesus. He is the true meeting place between God and man. And it's written in Scripture, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6. Why? For He alone is what? the mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. So these angels are seated there as a representation of that old era being gone and a new era beginning under the new covenant. I'm not going to meet with you people or anyone in a temple above a wooden ark again. I am meeting with anyone through my son, Jesus Christ. He is the only way to me. That's the symbolism, and I think it's great that... Why does John put it in there? So that we would see that symbolism, so that we would see that parallel, and know who Jesus is without a doubt. Notice how the two angels actually spoke with Mary. As I said earlier, whenever an angel appeared or spoke to anyone, they would freak out and start worshiping. Oh, They say to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? You know, this, this is actually a gentle correction. It's a rebuke. Uh, even the angels are sitting here. They know the Lord Jesus has risen, right? They were, they were present when these things transpired, and they're looking at her like, you're one of his disciples. What's your problem? Why are you weeping? Why are you not saying he has risen? So we could say he has risen indeed. You know, it became a tradition later, but why are, you, why are you not celebrating what's going on here? They are perplexed at her weeping. Because the time for mourning was over, the sorrow of death was forever shattered by the joyous reality of the resurrection, right? How does Mary reply? They have, she's spinning this theft narrative here, this theft hypothesis to the angels. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Wow, the angels are like, well, we know where he is. I mean, she was just still under that impression that his body had been stolen in the night. Now let's look at what happened in verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, <laughs> but she did not know it was Jesus. What this, what's going on here? Now, we're told clearly by John that she wasn't able to recognize Jesus. I mean, literally, she turns around. Maybe she heard brush under his feet or something, snapping or crackling. You know how that sound is, you know, and you're like, whoa, what's going on? Maybe that's what happens and she turns around and looks and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's him. And why is that? And there are so many, I think, good theories and okay theories and utterly ridiculous theories out there on why she wasn't able to recognize him. Um, 
It may be that she was supernaturally prevented from recognizing him. And I suspect that's what was going on. Uh, the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus were supernaturally prevented from recognizing Jesus for several miles, right? They walked with him, and Jesus was explaining to them the Old Testament. He was unpacking all the scripture toward himself because they were confused as to what happened. And we thought he was our Messiah and Christ. We believe he is, but now he's gone. And Jesus walks with them for a while, and they're not able to recognize him. But then all of a sudden they are. Uh, Luke 24, 16 if Mary had been supernaturally prevented like them, I think it was for her own good. I do. Uh, Steyer has a great commentary here. It's really phenomenal. He suggests that, that Jesus revealed himself to his own incrementally to avoid causing them more distress. Right? If you've been beaten and bludgeoned and murdered and slaughtered on a cross, a bloody heap, a mess, and you, you know, and you have your hope wrapped up in this person, and then he's, you don't understand his resurrection. He's buried, and then now he's, his body is missing, and you think that his body was stolen, and something like stolen or something of that nature, that thieves took it. For Jesus, what, to pop out of the bush and say, look, I'm here! And you think that would have a pretty negative effect on people who are emotionally distraught? I mean, this is why I'm not the Lord, because I would have done that. I would have played peekaboo or something, and I'd be like, you know, and they would have just dropped. I mean, right? I mean, think about it. Jesus is, Jesus is tender. Jesus is discerning. Jesus is sensitive to his disciples. I mean, go back and read the farewell discourse. You know, it just, he's, he's very tender, he's very sensitive, and he's the opposite of me, which has been my problem since birth. <laughs> listen, listen to how Steyer puts it. This is great. He says, although the impulse of his love urged him at once to the company of his own upon earth, who are still in the sorrow of death, yet he does not overwhelm them with sudden surprise at his glorious reappearance, but restrains himself, yields himself to their view by degrees, regulated by the highest wisdom of love. Their minds are gradually prepared, each one according to its temperament and need. Isn't that awesome? What a comment! Now, it, it may have been that Mary's heart, you know, was so full of sorrow and her eyes were so full of tears that she didn't recognize Jesus. You know, sometimes that kind of sorrow and those tears can have a, a kind of, you know, again, the grief, but, you know, it just kind of gets it to where you can't focus and see rightly. If you've ever wept so bitterly, you know what I'm talking about. You try to open your eyes and you just, you know, it's like you've got lenses over them. Some say that it might have been because of that. She was so grieved over his loss and potential theft of his body that he's standing there in his glorified body and she just can't recognize him because she's too sad. Her eyes are just filled with stuff. Or uh, Sproul suggests that it might have been that she was just expecting some other person like the gardener who was obviously in the garden tending it at the time. And that's what she says a little later. You know, she thinks that she is talking to the gardener. Um, again, like the 11 disciples, she was not expecting the Lord to rise from the dead. You have to understand that. She was not expecting him to rise from the dead because she didn't understand how he would do that or why he would do that. She came to understand as well as the other disciples. She didn't know that yet. And so she's not expecting to see Jesus walking around. She thinks grave robbers took him. Uh, MacArthur suggests that it may have been because of this. He says, Jesus' resurrection body was more glorious than before and certainly did not match her vivid memories of him, especially the battered, bruised, bloody corpse she helped prepare and place in the tomb on Friday evening. So it could have been because of MacArthur's explanation. Her last, you know, the last time she saw him, he was pulverized and I mean, if you saw somebody, the last time you saw them and they were pulverized, if you were to see them again, you would still expect them to be pulverized. But if he's in some kind of, you know, if he's been glorified here, and uh, there was another one too that I didn't suggest, but, uh, or that somebody suggested that I think is preposterous, but they said that um, it had something to do with he was like metamorphosing or something like that, and it's like, what, is he a butterfly? Yeah. <laughs> Caterpillar? I mean, it's just ridiculous. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but... We, we, don't, we don't have the answer here. John doesn't tell us why she couldn't recognize him. It's not in the text. But one thing is certain. No one, no one 
can recognize and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior apart from the presence and supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That's a reality. Jesus could stand right in front of someone and they'd have absolutely no clue as to who He is because they don't have spiritual eyes to see Him. Why is it that men cannot, cannot see, cannot receive, cannot surrender, cannot submit to the Lord Jesus without the powerful workings of the Holy Spirit? Why is that? Because men are dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 because men are spiritually blind, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Because men are trapped in Satan's kingdom, Colossians 1.13. Because men are slaves to sin, John 8.34. Because men are captives, 2 Tim 2.26. Because men are alienated from God, Colossians 1.21. Unable to seek God, uh, Romans 3.11. Unable to please God, Romans 8.8. 8. Hostile toward God, Romans 5.10. Helpless to change their sinful natures, Romans 5.6. And incapable of understanding spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2.14. You attend a church that keeps teaching you that you know, everyone needs to come to the Lord, which is certainly true, but everyone can of their own volition and strength. That's a lie. Men are dead. We are dead in our trespasses. We have no spiritual pulse until you know, we're made new and given new hearts by the Holy Spirit until we're regenerated. That is a reality. And it could play into this with Mary. I think she was regenerated and she was a believer. Uh, but it might have had more to do with illumination, something along those lines. Something was going on. She couldn't recognize Him. But in any case, no man will recognize Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's move to verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? <laughs> Supposing him to be the gardener. <laughs> Is this Tuesday? Is this when I get my yard done? I mean, it's like, what's going on here? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. <laughs> so Jesus not only appears to Mary, but he speaks to her here, and he repeats the question the angels asked verbatim. Right? She, he says exactly to her what the angels said, why are you weeping? Um, interestingly, these are the first recorded words of the risen Savior. First recorded words anywhere in the New Testament or anywhere in Scripture. So these are her... This, we gave him, humanity gave him these first words. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? I mean, we could have given him a reason to say something else, but this is what he had to, his very first words after he rises have to be this question. Kind of ridiculous on our part. And I, I just think that how privileged was Mary Magdalene? How privileged, you know, of a person was she? She, she, she has, I mean, other people had been at the tomb that morning. Jesus didn't appear to any of them. He'd been out. He chose to appear to her and to speak his very first recorded words in Scripture after he's risen to her. What a, what a privileged gal. What a graced gal she is. And yet, she still doesn't know who she's speaking with. <laughs> Are you the gardener? You know? A.W. Pink's commentary on verse 15 is good. He wrote, Jesus sought to arouse Mary from the stupefying effects of her sorrow. His first question was a gentle reproof. Shouldn't you be rejoicing instead of repining? His second question was still more searching. Who is it you are seeking among the dead? Have you forgotten that the crucified one is the Lord of life? The resurrection and the life, the one who laid down his life that he might take it up again. I love that J.C. Ryle sees that meaning buried in this text because she had heard these teachings about him being the resurrection and the life and all of these things. And even Jesus here, who knows all things, speaks in such a way that it has that kind of marvelment behind it, like, you don't know who I am. Well, he knows why, but still, 
You don't know what's going on here, Mary? And she obviously, it says just right there in the text, that she thought he was the gardener. I'd like to know how we know that. I mean, did she refer to him as the gardener? Or did she have a conversation with John, who is the human author behind this gospel, you know, the human instrument behind it? Did she have a conversation with, well, this guy appeared to me. I thought it was the gardener. John was probably like, you thought Jesus was the gardener? <laughs> wow. And you're alive, you know? He didn't hit you with his weed whacker? I mean, <laughs> you know? Crazy. Craziness. He didn't run you over with his Toro, you know? She thought he was the gardener. She thought this was the guy that was there to take care of the cemetery at, at Golgotha. There was a cemetery there at Golgotha. There was a garden there. And she says, if you have carried him away, right? <clears throat> I love this, that she never even, and this is interesting, she never even mentions to the gardener whom she's speaking of. She assumes that the gardener knows whom she's speaking of, Right? Notice how she never mentions by name who she's actually looking for to the gardener. You see that there? If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, not Jesus, and I will take him away. I mean, how, how was this gardener supposed to know whom she was referring to, right? She was so totally absorbed with Jesus that she assumed everyone would know whom she was talking about. That's what's going on here. I'm, I'm reminded of the, the Shulamite's dream in Song of Solomon 3.3 where the watchman comes to her and she asks this watchman, have you seen him whom my soul loves? This bride-to-be was so totally absorbed with her fiancé that she assumed the watchman would know whom she was talking about. And this is the kind of deep, consuming love Mary had for Jesus. She talked about Jesus like, without ever mentioning his name, she talked about him like everyone would know whom she's talking about. This happens. Sometimes I find myself talking about my wife like some person knows her, and they're like, who are you talking about, sir? Then I realize I'm holding a thing of Ben and Jerry's. I'm in the store. It's like, why am I talking about my wife with the stranger? No, that's never happened. But you know, how, you know what I'm talking about. You, you can be talking about someone and you, can, and you can love them so deeply that you can assume that those you're talking to know whom you're talking about. That's what happens here. But she's actually talking to Jesus, right? And she just doesn't know it yet. But she thinks this gardener's supposed to know who he is. You know who's buried here, right? You know, it's like, he's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about, ma'am. She talked about him as if everyone knew him, and that shows her affection and her deep love. And it's not such a terrible thing to mistake in Jesus for the gardener. You would think, well, what, what a downgrade. Well, maybe. It certainly didn't offend the Lord Jesus. He didn't correct her on that front here. But it's not far off to, to mistake in him as, as a gardener. She's not far from the truth here with this title. She's not. Jesus is a gardener. Jesus is the gardener, right? He is. Uh, I really like how uh, the 16th, 17th century English Calvinist jo Joseph Hall, uh, this guy was great, he put it like this. Listen to this, this is fascinating. The trade of the first Adam was to dress the Garden of Eden. Isn't that God put them in the garden and said, tend it, take care of it. The first Adam, literal Adam, Adam and Eve, Adam, was a gardener, right? And he says this, the trade of the last Adam, and Scripture refers to Jesus as the, the second Adam, right? The trade of the last Adam, the trade of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is to tend the garden of his church. He digs up the soil by reasonable affection. He sows in the seeds of grace. He waters it with his word. Didn't we just look at the parable of the vine and the branches? You think about that. So Mary makes a mistake, but she's not far off, is she? No, not at all. She didn't know what she was saying, though. She thought he was the gardener. <laughs> Let's move to verse 16. Jesus said to her, now look at this. No more playing around. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. And look at what she did. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Here, Jesus puts an end to Mary's grief, puts an end to her confusion, uh, and her entire devastation with just one simple word, her name. And in a flash, all her doubt, confusion, and sorrow vanished, just gone. It seems that when, when Jesus said her name, Mary, it was as if the scales fell from her eyes and she recognized him. Something in his voice revealed him to her. And, and he, had, he had already been speaking to her. So she had already heard his voice. But something about the way that he said her name, or the fact that he said her name, because that shows a personal connection, right? It was like the, uh, it was similar to like the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. You know, he makes this effectual call to those whom God has, has chosen and predestined to salvation. You know, it's a, it's a call that goes right inside and, and we hear that voice and we, we respond positively for the first time ever to Jesus. It's like that effectual call. When he said her name, it had that kind of penetrating power. But in Mary's case, it wasn't the effectual call because, as I said earlier, she'd already been saved. It, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the regeneration or that she was born again here. That had already transpired. It was more like an illuminating or enabling call which empowered her to hear and see Jesus rightly in that very moment. It was as if, as if the, the good shepherd had called out to one of his sheep and she heard and recognized his voice, John 10, 27, right? Why? Because his sheep know his voice and they come when he calls, right? And look at how Mary responded. She turned toward Jesus and said, Rabbani, which is nothing more than a lengthened form of the word rabbi. That's all it is. It's a lengthened form of that word. It just means teacher. And that's, I think, her favorite title for him. She calls him teacher, teacher, it's you. And what does she do? She obviously fell at his feet and obviously grabbed him around the ankles and held on tenaciously. Now look at 17a. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. <laughs> this right here is one of the most misunderstood scriptures in all of the scripture. <laughs> you ought to see the, the angles and ideas coming out of this one. Just bizarre. Jesus literally urges Mary not to cling to him. And he gives the rationale because he has not yet ascended to the Father. Why did Jesus say these things to her when only a few hours later he invited Thomas to touch his hands and his side, to put his hands on him, right? Verse 27, down in verse 27. Why would he tell her, hey, 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 let go? Why would he say that to her? But later, he invites someone to touch him and all. They hadn't been ascended yet. Why did he do that? Well, as I pointed to earlier, some argue that Jesus' body was still metamorphosing into its glorified state, and that's why he commanded Mary to let go. And I'm like, like a caterpillar and a butterfly. That's utterly ridiculous, it's a ridiculous theory, in my opinion. And some stand by it. And there's some notable, respectable people out there that think that he was in this transforming kind of state. And they, hey, 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 you can touch me after I'm transformed. And that's why, you know, he let it happen later that evening or whatever, or eight days later with, with Thomas. I think the answer is really, really simple. I think it is. And I don't know why people any, go any further than this. But here's, here's, here's what's happening here in the text. Mary was literally hanging on to Jesus for dear life. She fell, she wrapped up his legs, was holding on to his legs, and would not let him go for fear of losing him again. Right? Remember how distraught she was and how sad she was and how upset she was that his body had been taken or that it was missing. When she realizes the gardener is not the gardener, <laughs> that the gardener is the true gardener, that the gardener is Jesus himself because he revealed himself to her in this moment. The first thing she does is latch onto him. She grabs a hold of him and had an unbreakable grip, literally. She thought she had lost him and she was not about to let him go. So I think that verse 17a 
this would be a good paraphrase of what's actually being said here. I think this is what Jesus intended. It's okay. I'm not leaving yet. We still have more time. I'm going to be with the disciples, and I will be with you for a while, 40 days before I ascend to the Father. I think it's that simple. That's the way we ought to interpret that. It's not because he was a caterpillar turning into a butterfly or any other dumb thing. Somebody grabbed onto you like that. Look, I got to get to the bank, man. You can't hang on to my ankle forever. You know what I mean? I got chores to do today. I got to run some errands. Jesus is saying, look, you got time with me. You don't have to hold on to me and not let go. You know, you don't have to kind of hold me hostage here, Mary. I think that's what he's saying. Sproul put it like this. You don't have to hold me captive. (laughs) I think that's what he was saying. And in verse 17b, Jesus commissions her to do something for him. Look at it with me. Jesus said this, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus commissioned Mary to, again, how privileged is she? First one Jesus appears to, first one that he speaks to, and the very first commission he issues is to her. This is incredible. I, I, I never wanted to be a woman before, but I'd be okay with being Mary Magdalene in this moment. And that was just totally awkward. And we'll get deleted from the recording. <laughs> Jesus literally commissions her to, to deliver a special message. To whom? Does he say disciples? No. He says, my brothers. Pick up on that detail. This is the first time. This is the first time the disciples, who had been referred to as slaves in a good way, referred to as friends, right? John 15, 15. This is the first time they had ever been called Jesus' brothers by Jesus. Why didn't Jesus call the disciples his brothers or my brothers prior to his death, burial, and resurrection? Because the work of redemption had not yet been accomplished, which is the only thing that could establish an intimate relationship with him. That's why. This is post-redemptive work. This is post-resurrection. The work was done. The intimacy and the reconciliation with the Father and all that, that it entails was complete. And now, and now they could have that kind of intimacy and relationship with him. Therefore, he refers to them as, he knows the work is done. Go tell my brothers. How special is that? It's amazing. Jesus had to shed his precious blood to purchase this relationship with his brothers and sisters. Every meaningful relationship in in creation comes at some sort of cost, right? This is why relationships on Facebook and social media are nothing. There's no cost there to any of the people on the side of the screen. Maybe some screen time. It's worthless. But a meaningful relationship will cost you. You will make sacrifices. You will be others-minded. And to be our greater brother, he had to die and pay with his blood. And, And his brothers and sisters are all, all, who call upon his holy name for mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, and salvation, all who trust in him alone by grace through faith, he is not ashamed to call those who do that his brethren, right? Hebrews 2.11. Now let's just quickly analyze the message Jesus wanted Mary to deliver for him. Surprisingly, it isn't focused on his resurrection. Did you notice that? It's focused on his ascension, his return to the Father. Why? Because he wanted his brothers to know that he had not left the grave simply to remain with them here on earth, 
But in order to enter heaven and receive the glory he left behind, chapter 17, verse 5, to prepare a place for them in his father's house, chapter 14, verse 2, to send the helper, chapter 14, verse 16, that's the Holy Spirit, who would, who would what? Indwell them, chapter 14, verse 17, and what? Teach them all things pertaining to the gospel, chapter 14, verse 26, and empower them for the ministry of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus wants this message to be clear to them. I'm not staying. I'm going to go to the Father. I have to in order to fulfill my promises to you, in order to receive back the glory that I set aside to come to earth, to condescend. This is what he wants his initial message to the disciples to be. Not, hey, look, I've risen. Now you say, and risen indeed. It's not at all what he sent back to them. It's pretty amazing. It was as if he had instructed Mary to say, Brothers, I am here, but I'm not staying for long because I must return to the Father so I can receive back my glory and fulfill my promises to all my brethren, all believers for all time. Notice how Jesus calls his Father their Father and his God their God. Okay, so think of it logically. If Jesus and the disciples have the same Father, then they are truly brothers, right? That's what Jesus is trying to affirm here. He wanted this grand truth that, that they share the same Father, that they are true brothers. He wanted this grand truth to bring great comfort to their grieving hearts in this moment. How did Mary respond to Jesus' commission? Look at our last verse, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. What did Mary do? She obeyed. She obeyed Jesus' instruction. She went to where the disciples were staying, to their homes, to the upper room, or to wherever they were, and she joyfully announced that she had seen the Lord. Notice that title, Lord. Who was Jesus to Mary? Her Lord. What does that signify? Salvation. She believes in Him as Lord. It is necessary that we receive and accept and believe Jesus is our Lord, not just our Savior. He is both. She goes and says, I have seen the Lord. So she does announce His resurrection. And then what does she do? She recites His message to them. John doesn't tell us how the disciples responded, but Mark does when Mary entered their location, wherever they were, they were mourning and weeping, chapter 16, verse 10. But when she delivered the news, it says, unfortunately, in verse 11, they would not believe it. It would appear that the disciples were suffering at that time from the same uncontrolled grief that had affected Mary earlier that morning. Their unbelief and hardness of heart earned them a serious rebuke from Jesus eight days later. As they were seated at a table for supper, Jesus appeared to them and he chastened them for not believing the witnesses who had seen him. Mark 16, 14. Closing. Mary Magdalene was the first person Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And she alone, at that point, was commissioned by Jesus to go and announce a special message to his brothers, to his disciples. And she joyfully obeyed and completed her commission, didn't she? What a special gal she was. Although Jesus has never physically appeared to any of us like he did to Mary Magdalene, he has still made himself and his finished work known to us through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, through faith. Like Mary, we, if you are in Christ, like Mary, we are witnesses to his resurrection. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead has raised us, lives in us and gives life to our mortal bodies so that we might walk in newness of life, right? Like Mary, we have received a similar commission by Jesus. We are to 
go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus can make your life better, that he can prosper you, that he can fix all of your problems and, you know, fix your marriage and all these other symptomatic problems that we have. No, that's not the gospel. None of those things are the gospel. That we could have hope and joy and peace? No. Those are effects of the gospel. He has commissioned us to go and proclaim the gospel, which is his life, his perfect life, his, his death for our sins, his burial to settle our affairs, our account with God, and his resurrection, right? His conquering, his victory over Satan's sin, death, and hell. That's the gospel, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we are to go and proclaim to the whole creation, Mark 16, 15. We are to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and and teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. That's the Great Commission. We have been, Mary was commissioned, we have been commissioned. And I think it was Hudson Taylor that said it best. The Great Commission is a command. And someone in here one time during the sermon said, the Great Commission is not the Great Suggestion. It is a commission to be obeyed. Jesus requires obedience to this commission. Just as he required obedience to Mary in her smaller commissioning. The question to us is, are we being obedient like Mary? She obeyed. She joyfully went and shared the message she was given to those brothers. Are we fulfilling the commission we have been given? Are we spreading the gospel? Are we sharing the gospel with others? If we have no desire to obey our commission, no desire for others to be saved, then it is likely that we are not yet saved. Yeah, I said it. Are there other possibilities for our disobedience? Yes. We live in a nation with way too many amenities. We need some Middle Africa persecution. Church needs to be refined in this place. If we don't care about the lost, then maybe we're lost. Saved people desire for others to be saved. And they not only have this desire, what a wonderful desire it is, but they act. They act. They obey Jesus' commission, and they go and they share what Jesus has done in their life. They share the gospel. I'll just wrap it up with a great quote from my favorite preacher next to Jesus, because if I hadn't said that, Brandon would have sent me an email Rightfully so. My second favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And I'll tell you what he said in a moment, but I'll tell you what. This quote, what he says here. This is, this is, this is my prayer for me. This is my prayer for you, that God would grace us with the same attitude, the same disposition, the same fervor for reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, here it is. Guess what? It's in your bulletin. Listen to what he says. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there 
unwarned and unprayed for. Wow. I bet you he preached that in front of 10,000 people. I bet half of them left. Do we have this desire for the lost to be saved? That as far as I'm concerned, they can drag me right into hell with them because I'm hanging on to them. Is that you? Father, graciously give us this desire. A desire that, similar to that of Mary when she was hanging on to Jesus, a desire within us that is so fervent and so potent that we can't control it, and it is a desire for lost men to be saved. For them to experience the the same sovereign saving grace that we have experienced and are now enjoying, that we would never forfeit for all the world. Give us a desire to share the message of the gospel. Give us hearts and attitudes that the desire to obey the commission that we have been given. Lord, we are facing a, a task that is seemingly far from finished. And we pray, Lord, that we would engage the task of bringing the gospel to the nations. And I'm so thankful that on this particular Lord's Day that you have brought a guest here that has been doing this. I thank you for Steve. May we follow his example. May we leave behind comfort. Give us humble, willing hearts to do that. May we begin right here in our own Jerusalem and go out and beyond. That men are perishing. May we go and share the good news with them. And even if they scorn us or persecute us, that's a badge of honor. May we rejoice, just like the apostles did when they were beating for preaching the gospel. We thank you so much for your word and how it has challenged us today. God, I pray that it hasn't fallen on deaf ears, on hardened hearts. Soften us through the Spirit, Lord. Make us obedient. May we go out and share Christ this week. We love you and want to honor and sing to you now. May we do it with all our might and hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.